0: Welcome to The Path to Exit, a podcast to help software and internet founders understand the process to raise capital or sell their business.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Mike Lyon, founder of Vista Point Advisors, and this is The Path to Exit. This show is dedicated to helping founders of software and internet businesses understand what it takes to raise capital or sell their business and how to do it well. My guest today is Ethan Carlson. Ethan's an associate of VistaPoint Advisors and previously worked for Houlihan Loki. Ethan has cleaned up the SaaS metrics for hundreds of SaaS businesses and has a keen sense for the issues founders face when trying to put together SaaS metrics for investors and buyers in an easily digestible format. Today's podcast is a companion episode to the key metrics for selling a SaaS business, episode seven. In episode seven, we discuss the key metrics for selling a SaaS business and how to begin the process, how to think about and calculate these key metrics. However, getting the data into this format to calculate metrics can be a huge lift and there's some common issues founders face when trying to do this on their own. This podcast is about common issues and how to deal with them. Ethan, let's start with the most important data, which is the revenue by customer data. We call it the RBC data. First of all, is this something that can just be exported from accounting systems?
2: Thanks, Mike. So definitely not. For our clients, we're typically spending anywhere between 50 to 100 hours to get the raw data from a QuickBooks or a Stripe or a ChartMogul into a clean, accurate and buyer and investor ready revenue by customer. So this is a data set that's very much built over the course of several days and not just exported from the system of record.
1: Maybe contrast a little bit the RBC data that founders typically have in their accounting systems with what that final product should really look like.
2: Yeah, definitely. So starting off simple and and really high level, this data set needs to be monthly. So we at Vistapoint, along with really every SaaS buyer, is going to want to look at retention on a monthly cohort basis year over year. So we need to have this data monthly. And occasionally, founders are only set up to pull this data annually from this starting point. So typically, that ends up being where we start from day one.
1: And one question we sometimes get from founders is, why don't you do the analysis month over month? So to them, a lot of people think, okay, just look at my customers this month versus next month. Why don't you do that? How does that kind of pollute the analysis when you do it that way?
2: One of the biggest things that we see when you look at it month over month is that you get a lot of false upsell and downsell really just because of seasonality. And we see this a lot, especially in ed tech companies and really any company with a lot of seasonality. So looking at it year over year sort of washes out that seasonality and makes it more of an apples to apples analysis. And really, we think it's important to do it on the year over year monthly cohort basis because this is how every sophisticated SaaS buyer is going to do it. So it's really important not only that when we go out to market, we're showing exactly what they're expecting to see, but we know what to expect. We know what they're going to be seeing when they do their analysis, when they finally get the raw data.
1: And obviously the reason why we're putting together this RBC is for the most important set of metrics, which is the retention metrics. So talk a little bit about what success looks like there and what are the common issues that creep up all the time when you're trying to take your accounting system data into that revenue by customer analysis.
2: One of the, I think, most common errors we see is that one-time services or implementation revenue is rolled into this revenue by customer that's coming from QuickBooks or Stripe. And while this looks better from a total scale perspective when you're just summing up the monthly recurring revenue, what we want in the revenue by customer is just the contractually obligated recurring SaaS revenue and occasionally some of the highly reoccurring revenue. Not only are these the only kinds of revenue that we can actually get credit for is annualized recurring revenue, that ARR number, but also these revenue streams, when looked at alone, look significantly better from a retention metric standpoint. So there's a lot less fluctuation and there's a lot less false downsell that's really going to impact that net and gross retention.
1: Yeah, and there's just all kinds of things that pop up with the retention data in terms of understanding how to spread that out correctly, foreign exchange rates. And then a big thing we see are false signals around upsell and downsells. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I would say, in the sort of false upsell and downsell realm, one thing that
2: causes a lot of this is having customers show up more than once along the rows of the data set. So either when you're preparing the data set, you're not deduplicating based on unique customer ID or customer name, or there's something in the data set that's causing these customers to not be identified as the same customer and need to be rolled up into one. Typically, this happens if customer names are self-reported, if customers change their contact emails or switch payment methods. The difference could be as simple as just two spaces between the words in a company name versus one, but this leads to the customer showing up twice in these rows, and that artificially drags on retention metrics. So we need to make sure that these small differences are captured correctly and that these customers are rolled into one line item when we go through this analysis and do it fairly manually, we're picking up one to two percentage points across the board on retention metrics, which actually translates to real value on the valuation side.
1: Yeah, I know this may sound like minutiae because this is painful work, but as Ethan said, you know, you can see 1% to 2%, sometimes you can see 4 to 5%, and that can materially change your valuation and really which category of companies you're in around retention rates. So while this is time-consuming, I promise you it's worth your time to make this look as good as possible, and a lot of it is just the data quality issues. And know that buyers aren't super incented to point this out, right? They would love to have you think that you're at a lower retention rate. Could you maybe talk a little bit about some of the revenue recognition systems? Sometimes what we'll hear from founders is, hey, I have ChartMogul or I have ProfitWell. I should be good on this. I think what people don't understand is that leaves out the judgment. So these are good tools for some of the data capture. But retention is a lot about the definition you want to use and the judgment around that. Talk about why having modal and ProfitWell may be great, but not the full answer to the issue. We think of these systems as a really solid
2: starting point, but in general, like you said, their reports and their metrics are only as good as the source data. So for example, if we go back to that customer name example, if you've got one customer with two different records of a slightly different name and profit well-say, their reporting won't be able to identify these as the same customer and won't consolidate them. So that's something that you have to do on the back end that they really can't do on an automatic basis when they're presenting you with the high-level metrics. Another example, if you think about late renewal customers, right? So you've got a customer whose contract ends in January. Turns out they forgot to renew until March or they didn't have the funding to do so. That won't be captured as a late renewal in ProfitWell when they're giving you their net retention metrics. So you actually, in the back end, when you have the data, have to change your definition for churn. So you have to be able to identify these customers that are simply late renewals. They're not churns and then a new customer. You have to be able to smooth that gap out on the back end in the analysis when you're preparing the data set.
1: Yep. Great point. Talk to us about what success looks like. So you've invested 40 or 50 hours to clean up this raw data. What does the RBC file look like? And when do you start to have a good sense that, hey, I'm making progress here and this is looking like what I expected it to look like? In general, you'll know you're on the right track when you've got a clean Excel
2: file. There's no duplicate customers along the rows. And each one of these customers has a smooth and consistent monthly revenue. You're not seeing any one to three month gaps, unless you know for a fact the customer has actually churned. And the revenue is trending upwards with the upsell and the new customer acquisition. So it should look like a fairly smooth up into the right trend.
1: And another tip is if you look at your monthly P&L, and then you take the revenue by customer file, and if those two line items on the revenue side sum to the same, at least for that recurring revenue, or within 3 or 4%, that's a sign you're on the right track. If they're off by 10% or 15%, you still have a pretty big problem that's worth figuring out. Now we'll move on to gross margin. I think this one gets a lot less attention from SaaS founders, and there's a reason why this one is critically important. You're either a software business or you're not. And there are lots of companies out there right now masquerading as software and SaaS businesses because they know those are high multiples. Obviously, investors and buyers are on the lookout for that. So making sure that you're calculating this gross margin is critical. We're working on a deal right now where one of the buyers, I think, was really skeptical about our gross margins because they've looked at some other companies in the sector who ultimately had really poor gross margins, like 60, 70%. So they really tried to put us through the ringer on diligence. Fortunately, we were prepared for that and had all the backup data to prove to them that we were more of a software business. Thus, we had higher gross margins. But Ethan, maybe talk about, A, what should be in the cost of goods sold to calculate a gross margin? And then maybe some of the things that people either try to put in there it shouldn't be, or things that people exclude that really should be in this calculation.
2: We can sort of break this down into two different categories. The first is common SaaS expenses that need to be in gross margin. So these are going to be costs that pretty much every SaaS business is going to have to some degree, and they really do need to be considered in your cost of goods sold. The first is going to be hosting costs, website maintenance fees, and then salary costs for any customer success employees. These all need to be in that cost of goods sold. Going over to, I guess, the opposite side, which is common SaaS expenses that founders are going to try and include in gross margin, but they really shouldn't be, and you're overly penalizing yourself from a margin perspective if you're including these in cost of goods sold. That's things like anything related to product development, so anything in R&D, anything related to sales commissions, especially those related to upsell, and then anything in your S&M, so marketing, advertising, your Google AdWords spends, thing like that. That should all be below gross margin and in that OPEX. One of the tests that we'll tell our founders is, if you think about if I were not to pay this expense this month or for a year, would any of my current customers still be able to access and use my product? If the answer to that question is yes, that cost needs to be excluded from your cost of goods sold and certainly should be below the line in OPEX.
1: And one point back on the R&D, typically there's some portion of, I wouldn't even call it R&D, but engineering spend that's related to keeping the platform up and running. So some engineer's time, that amount of salary and compensation and benefits would need to be included in cost of goods sold. I would say this is something that almost no one tracks, right? What percent of a person's time is tied to that? I don't think you need to go to the point of keeping hourly records with all your engineering staff, but I do think it makes sense to have a sense for how much time of, usually it's just one engineer's time is spent on this, but that's something you do want to include in cost of goods sold and buyers will really push back on that. But one of the bigger mistakes we see founders make is putting excess things in the COGS line because it doesn't really matter to them, right? They're looking more at cash flow anyway, which doesn't matter which line item you put that in. But that is a strong signal about, is this a software business? I remember one time we were marketing a deal and when we first started marketing it, we were not getting a good reception. Lots of folks were passing. And what we realized is that our founder had been talking to all these investors before he hired us and had painted the picture of this services business, not a software business business. Even though it was actually a a software business, he just had a background in services. And that was a hard battle to fight to get everyone to believe this was a software business. So think of gross margin as almost like a light switch in terms of buyers' interest. They either think you're a software business, uh, in which case they'll probably be interested and the multiple will be higher. But if they think you're not, they're going to be out on this transaction and you're going to be dealing with a whole different class of investors who do not see valuation the same on something that looks more non-recurring or services they'll either value it off a really low multiple of revenue or may move to an EBITDA multiple. Last one we wanted to touch base on, just because there's a lot of confusion for this, is the LTV to CAC. Can you talk about some of the issues we see with the data and frankly, just how it's calculated?
2: I'll address the second part of that question first, which is a lot of founders that we see when they come to us with their sort of internal KPI dashboards, they're of course tracking LTV to CAC, but they're calculating their LTV on more of an assumptions basis. So typically we'll see the ACV being calculated based on obviously recognized revenue, CAC being calculated based on the PL, and then LTV is just an assumption. So it says, hey, my customer stays with me for 15 years or five years. And there's actually a formulaic way to calculate your LTV. This is based on the retention metrics that are based on the revenue by customer, specifically logo retention. So if you take your average ACV and you just divide that by one minus your logo retention or your logo churn, that'll get you to an actual formulaic LTV. And that's a more accurate input into your LTV to CAC. And this is, again, why it's extremely important to have that accurate revenue by customer And subsequently, an accurate retention analysis, because obviously LTV to CAC can be a a really key input into deciding how much you're spending on your customer acquisition. And having these inaccurate LTV assumptions or an inaccurate logo churn number can significantly skew that LTV to CAC output. When you start thinking about your customer acquisition cost, uh, just like COGS, I think there's a little bit of confusion around this, and we typically see this misstated by at least a little bit. So obviously anything involved in the cost of acquiring the customer, so most commonly anything related to advertising and marketing, so all of your SM costs, sales commissions and salaries for salespeople specifically focused on acquiring new customers, so not including anybody that's only doing upsell. And then cost of tools that you're using for sales or a percentage of the cost, roughly equivalent to how much time is being used on the software for new customers.
1: Great insights. And so, in today's podcast, we talked a lot about what that RBC file needs to look like, how you can't just download it directly from your QuickBooks system or even something like ChartModal and Profit. Well, it's a good start, but you really need to get into the actual revenue by customer trends to make sure that looks right you know you've done a good job when you start to see this nice, smooth shaping to the right curve coming out of your analysis without a lot of gaps in the revenue by customer month to month, or if there are, you understand exactly what those are. And then changing these duplicates is just a free, easy boost to retention, right? It's true retention. We also talked a little bit about gross margin, what you should and shouldn't include in there, and how to think about CAC to LTV. Ethan, thanks for your insights and joining the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Vistapoint Advisors is a founder-focused investment bank that advises software and internet founders through M&A and capital-raised transactions. We are a fully unconflicted investment bank who only works for founders on the sell side, so you know that we're always representing your best interests. Securities is offered through Vistapoint Advisors, member FINRA, CIPIC. This has been provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to address all circumstances that might arise. Testimonials from past clients may not be representative of the experience of other clients, and there is no guarantee of future performance or success. Clients are not compensated for their comments. If you have any questions about the process of selling your business or raising capital, reach out to a member of our team, or check out the Four Founders section of our site by visiting fourfounders.guide.